Humanitarian. On this week's episode of Humanitarian, I sit down with Nama Butatoki, the founder of Kathmandu Living Labs. KLL did outstanding work during the 2015 earthquake in Nepal, where they crowdsourced a quick overview of the extent of the damages after the earthquake. We have discussed crowdsourcing endlessly over the past decade. It's a very appealing idea and the ability to quickly leverage a large crowd of volunteers, the affected population and collect immense amounts of data seems to be such a no-brainer that it, it should solve many of the problems we face with assessment. However, very often we end up with all the data being collected simply turning into noise rather than creating a clear picture because there's no analysis of the data collected and also because there often is a very weak link to the decision makers that supposedly take action based on this data. The work KLL did in 2015 during the earthquake overcame both of these pitfalls and I think it's one of the clearest examples I've seen of successful crowdsourcing. So that's where Nama and I begin our conversation before we move on to talking about the work they did during reconstruction after the earthquake. And finally, we talk about what it's like to run a small, very technical organization and trying to grow that in Nepal. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Nama Budatoki, welcome to Trumanitarian. Thank you, Lars. You are the founder and executive chairman of Kathmandu Living Labs, KLL. And maybe let's begin by... Uh, Tell us a bit about that. What What is KLL? When and why did you found it? KLL stands for Kathmandu Living Labs. We founded it in 2013, primarily to advance OpenStreetMap in Nepal and this region. How many people are you? What's, what's your main activities today? Now we're about 20 people. Um, our main activities include mapping in OpenStreetMap, expanding the coverage of the map, in enhancing the quality of the map data in OpenStreetMap. In addition to mapping, we also uh, develop uh, you know, mobile apps and other web development, other technological solutions. And we, we first met uh, towards the end of 2015 at a lessons learned exercise following the, the earthquake in uh, the stock Kathmandu that year. You found a startup uh, in, in 13. You I'm sure you start uh, learning some things and getting going, and then suddenly this earthquake strikes, and, and then what do you do? We are already you know, collecting data, mapping in OpenStreetMap. Uh, we knew the earthquake was coming in Nepal one day, and we also knew that the map data would, would be crucial uh, if we are hit by the earthquake. As we are doing that, we are hit by the earthquake in 2015, as you said. You know, within the first couple of days, we realized that information was crucial, information is crucial in, in, in any disaster. And you know, what happened in Nepal uh, was in 2015 was uh, many rural districts, rural villages were badly hit by the earthquake. The Nepal's rural villages, uh, sometimes difficult to access. There are no, ne- no networks, there's no proper communication. So it was very important for us, for the response agencies, for the you know, rescue workers to understand what is happening where, especially in the countryside? You know, the people in the villages knew, of course, what they were looking for, what they needed. But the response and relief agencies generally centered in Kathmandu and other district headquarters. 
did not have access to that information. So uh, in a way, people had information and the same information was being sought by the response agencies you know, in district headquarters or in the big, big cities. So we realized, you know, how can we collect that information, that data from the villages and make that available to those who are already working in, you know, in helping these people? The, our work is started with, with that. And if I can stop you there, because I, one of the issues that I've had with crowdsourcing is that I think we often tend to fall so much in love with the data we can collect with these fantastic new tech uh, possibilities we have that we forget to think about the utility of that data. But what struck me exactly about your work was that it was sought after by, for example, the army who used this information as one source into how to conduct their operations. And so how did you manage that? That's a, that's a very important question. Um, we also noticed that, you know, after the earthquake, so many different groups started collecting information. Uh, at some point, I started to feel that there is information overload, a sort of thing, you know. Um, but we knew the collection of information is just a beginning. And, you know, the, the effective use of information, effective use of data is, is something a long way to go. When we started this crowdsourcing campaign, I would say, honestly speaking, we are not entirely sure at the beginning whether the information we collected would be eventually used by uh, different agencies. But uh, interestingly, soon after we started to collect information, the people started to come to us and ask for that information. Um, you know, the information on the one hand was already open because we collected the crowdsourced data and made it public uh, through different media, through web portal, through mobile app. You know, we even uh, supplied an Excel sheet with a bunch of data periodically to those agencies who are interested in data. But the army, Nama, it's, it's like, I, I'm not a military man. I don't know much about military operations. But one thing I know is trust is not what they base their operations on. They are very careful with what they sort of take in and, and accept this information. How, how did you manage to get the army to trust your data, the quality of your data? Did they come to you? Did you go to them? How, how did that happen? I think that before army started using our data, it has already created a sort of buzz, you know, in the humanitarian sector. You know, there were several other, particularly youth groups, they had already started this, using this data. So there, 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 was, there were actually few groups, you know, dedicated only to communicate and share the existence of the data we collected through the crowdsource approach. So, um, but they did not reach out to army. So I think army came to know about it because there were several people, several, several groups already started talking about this data. Hey, you know, KLL has uh, started collecting very useful set of data and there is a utility, you know, to, to, to leverage that data. I, I, I met a senior 
army officer. You know, I think he and his team came to my situation room. Situation room means yeah, we, were, we were not inside the room. We were in an open space, of course. Uh, they came to us just to see, you know, what is happening, what sort of data is being collected, uh, you know, how useful this data might be. They, they were interested to understand some of these basics, uh, you know, the approach data, uh, who are the people involved in it. And uh, then I had a chance to thoroughly explain this whole workflow. And I think they got it uh, pretty quick. Then I was invited to uh, the army you know, headquarters. Uh, they did have an information technology uh, branch within the army. Uh, the, the person who visited our situation room were from the information technology team. And I was invited there and then, and then a couple of people from the army and I went to what we call a national uh, operation center that was within a ministry of home. We both went there and communicated, you know, and, you know, the government had uh, a, a portal and they had provided links to different sources of data. And we requested them to also include this data. So, um, you know, it's very interesting that it's not just me. It was, there was also somebody from the army. We both went to the Ministry of Home to actually, you know, request them to put this data, you know, in their web portal. And they did that immediately. And um, we came back and then, you know, our conversation continued. Um, and of course the army did have uh, a specific, uh, you know, certain specific requirements. So for example, they, they wanted data periodically. You know, we used to publish data through the web portal as the data comes in to us from the field, you know. But the army wanted it you know, every three hours. So basically we would compile this information and we would send it to them. <clears throat> And then the army had established a validation desk within the army headquarters. <clears throat> and they would validate this data before they, they use it. And that makes perfect sense uh, because this data that's being collected from citizens, you know, no data is perfect. Uh, you know, army also, the data is one different, you know, sources, you know, they wanted to uh, validate it with their existing knowledge. And that's how, uh, you know, the, the you know, it, it started to become a part of, uh, you know, their, uh, you know, use. And for me, it's an incredibly important aspect of the of the work you did, because my my issue with with crowdsourcing often is that I it's a bit like having a nine one one without having an ambulance. In other words, that there's a disconnect between very granular data being collected from. A crowd of people, and and in in a sudden onset disaster, an expectation being raised that if if I give this information to somebody, then something happens. But very often, I I see crowdsourcing being disconnected from any sort of operational assets. And what you managed to do here was plug straight into the primary responder in in Nepal. The army is obviously the the biggest uh, operational actor on the ground when when something like this happens. And that made your data incredibly impactful. Lars, yes, you, you absolutely. I, I would, you know, let, let me mention, uh, it, it's not just Army. Army was 
one of the major users of this data. They actually have um, produced a quick report, you know, mentioning how they utilize this data. And, you know, um, they also use other sources of the data, of course. Um, but uh, there are also several other agencies who, who use this data. Different INGOs or other humanitarian agencies were assigned different geographic areas to respond to, to the crisis. And then these, these organizations were looking data specifically for the geographic area that they were tasked by the government. And our system did have a feature where people could just tell, hey, you know, I need data from this area, from this district or from, the, from this local you know, municipality or, or village development committee. Uh, and then data, you know, only from that area would go to them. You know, that was extremely useful for these people. So I, I, I don't remember all the organizations. Um, I just wanted to emphasize that there are also several other organizations who heavily use this data. You know, some people even said, you know, like you said, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, you know, we use your data, we supply this medicine or food, whatever, you know, and it was very successful. Thank you so much. Uh, if this data didn't exist and we would not be able to, to do what, what, what we could do, uh, you know, this, this, these messages from these people or organizations actually touched us that kept on motivating my team to continue the work for several weeks. How many reports did you collect from the crowd? I think it's about, uh, it's, it's slightly more than 2,000 reports. And, and what, you know, what was interesting was um, when the report comes in from, from the villages, and then we had a mechanism to update the report. For example, if people are looking for 200 tents, you know, and then the report would be there. Hey, in this particular, you know, community, they are looking for 200 tents. And if another organization supplied 100 tents, you still need 100 more tents, right? And then that information would be updated. The agency X has already supplied 100 tents and we still need 100 more tents, you know? So for example, some of the agencies, uh, you know, probably they don't have you know, capacity to supply all the need. You know, they only can supply a partial you know, uh, need. So um, yeah, again, um, I think I don't remember the exact number right now, but this is, is anything between 2,000 and 3,000. And how, how long did you continue this work of, of collecting the immediate needs uh, right after? The, how long was that phase of your work? It went for a couple of months. So in the initial months, you collect around 3,000 reports from uh, villages about the, the immediate needs created by the earthquake. And, and then what do you do once focus starts shifting towards reconstruction? How, how did you deal with the, with the reconstruction phase? We, we work on the response for the first about five to six months. Uh, you know, of course, during the first couple of months, it was, we were very active, and as time passed, you know, it, it slowed down. We were also tired, uh, 
you know, exhausted. Um, and then um, our focus shifted to reconstruction um, about six months after the earthquake. Um, our major contribution in reconstruction was that we helped the government to collect the massive damage data. Um, our government needed uh, the assessment of the ease of the buildings in villages, in districts, you know, in order to plan their reconstruction. So they decided to use technology in order to assess the buildings and collect data from the, from the field. So I'm talking about a million buildings, by the way. So that's a big number. Um, they made a very interesting decision and I really respect our government for taking that decision. Uh, and traditionally they used pen and paper to go to the villages. You know, it, it was something like so, census. Um, collect data in paper, bring the data to district headquarters or Kathmandu and convert that paper data into a digital form. You know, it would very easily take, take uh, several months, uh, years, you know, um, but there was no time. You know, the thing is, unless the data is available to the decision makers, they cannot start planning for reconstruction. So they, they wanted to use technology. So idea was they would recruit about 3000 engineers because you need engineers to assess buildings, right? Um, and then each of these engineers would be given a tablet device loaded with the software and they would go to the villages, visually inspect the buildings, um, interview the owner of the building for about 30 to 40 minutes and record all that information in a tablet. And they would immediately upload that information and that, 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 and, and that the data would come to Kathmandu, you know, in the government server. Uh, so that is then becomes available to decision makers from next day. That was the idea. But it was at the beginning, you know, uh, a lot of people did not believe that that would happen because in villages in Nepal, there is no electricity. How would you charge your, your device? There is no internet. How would you send your data? And we did have a lot of discussions. But anyway, I, I you know, Nepal took that decision and, um, and um, we had an opportunity to, to be the part of this. Uh, you know, KLL was selected to help the government on all the technology related, you know, activities. So designing app, training engineers to use the technology. Once they send the data to the server, make sure data sits correctly on the server, you know, and then help the government officials in data validation, data processing, uh, you know. So we work with, with uh, you know, different organizations. Um, the most of them were from the government. Um, and it's very interesting, you know, Lars, I must tell this, in about four months, uh, we collected um, data for uh, more than, I think, 800,000 buildings. 
from 11, you know, badly hit districts. Um, you know, four months, 800,000 buildings, about 3,000 engineers, um, you know, is, is unbelievable. Yeah, I just did the math. It's it's some somewhere around six and a half thousand buildings per day over that period on average. That and that's truly impressive. Yes, um, and this is uh, considered to be one of the biggest mobile survey in the world in those days. You know, um, uh, biggest in the sense that every day you did have three thousand engineers in the field at any moment, and data is coming to the server continuously. And uh, it is not only a text data, we also collected pictures. You know, you know we, we had to collect 10 pictures per, per building. You know, when the engineers uh, assess the building, they would assign a grid. Grid five means completely damaged. One means nothing has happened to the building. So in order to substantiate, in, in order to produce evidence against that, you know, grid, you know, they also had to provide, take a picture, take a picture and um, uh, upload that picture. And the pictures take more bandwidth than text data. And we had a massive challenge to bring those pictures. And we did a, a pretty interesting few uh, workarounds, you know, for the developing country. You know, if, if, when people think you are in Geneva, if you, if you are thinking of this project from Geneva, you wouldn't probably worry too much about the internet bandwidth, you know, you would operate with that conception and you would very easily fail, you know. Uh, but we knew Nepal, we knew Nepal's villages pretty well. And we had started thinking about that from day one and, uh, you know, that worked. It, it is a truly remarkable story and I think it's worthwhile just going back and, and remembering that you founded uh, KLL in 2013, so you're less than two years old or about two years old when, when this happens. And, and it is, it's a lot of credit to you and the team for actually pulling this off. I'm sure that in Nepal, this work has been greatly appreciated by the government and your clients. And so, so what's next for you now? You, you come out of, of the earthquake uh, some years ago with, with this very positive experience. And what, how have you developed KLL since then? Um, I, I, should, I should tell you one thing, frankly. Uh, you know, we haven't been able um, to put a concentrated, you know, effort um, to deeply reflect, learn, and prepare for the future disaster in Nepal and another part of the world. You know, there are people from the academia very interested in this work. Um, people have written journal articles, you know, um, and there are several other discussions. Um, but, uh, you know, I had expected that this thing would inform, um, you know, our preparation for the future in a substantial way. Uh, uh, given the fact that a lot of people liked it, um, as, as you said, this, this work, both uh, the crowdsourcing, uh, you know, work we did into, you know, during the response phase, and also this uh, damage assessment work that we supported the government in the reconstruction. Um, I think a lot of people 
I've appreciated this. And, uh, you know, some people find it really, really, you know, the breast work. Um, but I think it's a, it's a sort of a missed opportunity. It's not that, you know, the people haven't, um, um, you know, I, 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 you know, I don't know how to put it. You know, we we could we could have built on it. We could have developed, you know, and and what we did in 2015 Nepal earthquake is not something perfect, but it gives us a pretty good, uh, uh, you know, a groundwork. <laughs> You know, to discuss, to debate, to build, um, you know, that all requires some effort. You know, KLL has been doing that, you know, um, uh, I think we have inspired other organizations, um, both within the Nepal and beyond Nepal. I'm pretty happy with that. Um, that's, that's one side of the story. And now coming back to your question, what KLL has been doing, um, you know, um, KLL, is 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 not you know limited just and disasters you know our work is you know sort of cross cutting um, we have also contributed some of the governance projects um, we also do some uh, research with the university um, you know we also continue to do open street mapping which is our flagship uh, program you know um, so um, um, you know, we, you know, during the last couple of years, uh, we did open, you know, this open mapping in Nepal, in India. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's slightly it's a humanitarian work. It's again a preparation for a disaster. <clears throat> and once you have a data, you can also use the data beyond disaster. You know, once you have a impressive map. Uh, of a city, you can use the map when there is a disaster, and you can also use that map uh, for other planning activities. But it sounds to me like you feel that there's a, there's a missed opportunity. Why do you think that is? Why, why did people not queue up to invest in this sort of preparedness, which obviously was very impactful in 2015? Uh, I think um, the work we did in 2015 earthquake um is 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 not you know quite there you know at the mainstream what I would say a, a traditional disaster response and he, as you he use the word of the you know uh, the the humanitarian uh model you know is 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 a little different right and then so you need you need to stage, you need to go beyond your comfort zone. You need to try to understand what happened. You know, in many cases, people want to continue what they have been doing in the past. You know, that's, that's relatively easy, that's comfortable. Uh, you know, when, when things are a little far, you know, that might be interesting. And people say, you know, if I talk to people, people say, oh, that's pretty interesting, oh, amazing, you know, that's one thing. And you know, being able to you know to understand that and integrate in your work requires a different level of courage, a different level of determination. Um, you know, that's I think what is missing.
So basically, the mainstream actors have not managed to engage with you in a way that has led to really a sustained effort to to create a higher level of preparedness. I I I I would agree with you, and and it's not just you know Catherine the Living Lab's work, um, is is any new innovations, uh, new ideas, uh, you know, um, people are majority of the people are reluctant, uh, you know, they don't want to take risk. Uh, you know, um, they don't want to put uh, sufficient effort uh, to understand, to internalize these new things, you know, uh, partly because they might be busy into, you know, doing what, what they have been doing. Um, you know, I really don't know, you know, that's, that's, that's a different topic of uh, uh, discussion. Why don't people, why do people continue to do what they do? Uh, you know, in, in, that's, that's what I see in the majority of the cases, but, but there are people, you know, they're looking for new ideas, um, um, but you need resources, you know, you know, uh, do, the, do these people have resources to do that? You know, do they, do, do they, do they have that luxury? Uh, uh, so, so there are not one question lost, there are a bunch of these questions around this conversation. I think we need to revisit the, the humanitarian business model, if you want if I can speak a bit in economic terms. I think on one side, clearly what KLL did during the earthquake creates much value for the community as such. But at the same time, I can see a lot of organizations in similar positions as yourself, sort of small, very technical, very capable service providers, struggling to break into getting money out of the mainstream organizations. I actually think that there is a sort of a market failure there and that we need to revisit that. Because if, if you are capable of delivering the level of services and the quality of information that you delivered during the earthquake, then it pretty much should be a no-brainer to also throw some money at that. But we can see in, in your case, but I think in many cases, the difficulty for the, the mainstream humanitarian organizations to let go of part of the value chain. There's a, there's a strong tendency, I think, to, to want to do uh, everything. As, as, as a response organization. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, um, you know, it will take some time, Lars. Um, you know, the, the conversation as it started, um, you know, we need to continue to, uh, you know, continue this conversation. We need to continue to educate people. We need to continue to demonstrate them the value of doing things, you know, differently. We have to, you know, you know, we have to we have to debate that the existing model probably is not working to the level that we all would like to see. Uh, you know, we are living in a very different context. Uh, in a technological context, things are changing. Um, uh, you know, in, in many fields, the rapid development, um, and um, you know, we, we just cannot ignore that. You know that will not be a good thing for humanity, I guess. Um, uh, but but I know, you know, uh, you know, it takes time. Uh, you know, the, the change is inevitable. Is 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 going to be there. Um, you know, when also depends upon you know intensity of our conversation, our work. Uh, you know, our enthusiasm. Uh, you know to push people on in the seat. Um, and then I'm very optimistic. 
you know, and there are actually uh, examples around the world, uh, sufficient indications that there will be change, but it, you know, but I wish, you know, it happens sooner than later. Nama, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast and, and sharing your experience. You're doing fantastic work. I'm so impressed with KLL and, and, uh, and the progress you've made over the past years. I wish you all of the best luck for the future and hope to have a chance to engage with you in person one day again. Thank you, Lars. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Um, my last and quick note is, uh, you know, over the last, uh, you know, couple of years, you know, after the, the earthquakes, we've been continuing mapping OpenStreetMap. Um, it's very likely that I will be doing some mapping work in Nepal and few other countries in Asia, you know, uh, to map the secondary impacts of COVID-19. Now I look forward to seeing the outcome of that. Uh, it, it's an incredibly important piece of work, and I think it's what we are all struggling with these days: is understanding what are actually the secondary impact of of uh, the pandemic. How can we how can we get evidence to actually tell the right story about the way in which uh, humanitarian and development outcomes are being reshaped by this uh, crisis? Souls of men beyond what you see. Stages are different for each. Who will lead? Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks, fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets. Ask better questions, pick apart, educate. And no one is safe. We're here to build and debate. We are, we are searching for more. Open up your mind beyond rich or poor. For the truth, you've been warned. Humanitarian.